This is Learn Right, the school board campaign training podcast from the Leadership Institute. I'm your host, Ron Nearing, and I'm joined by our guest, Tom Jones, seasoned professional researcher and founder of the American Accountability Foundation. The Leadership Institute is the nation's leading organization training conservatives to succeed in the public policy arena. Today's podcast is part of the Leadership Institute's new school board campaign training program, which you can reach online at leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. Here with me in the studios for episode one of the podcast is Tom Jones. Tom is someone who I got to know very well uh, when we were both working on the Ted Cruz presidential campaign in 2016. Tom was our director of research on the campaign. Uh, he has since then uh, founded uh, the American Accountability Foundation. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, Ron. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Tell us a little bit first about the American Accountability Foundation, what it does, why you founded it, and how people can be supportive if, if they like what you're doing. Sure. So the American Accountability Foundation was created to fill a vacuum in the conservative movement. There were a lot of groups doing a lot of great things in the conservative movement. If there's nobody that was using the skills of opposition researchers to help the public have a better understanding of the policies and nominees that are going through the system on Capitol Hill um, and in the administration. So what we did is we set up an organization that's going to help augment the efforts of senators and the administration in vetting individuals who look to serve in the administration or policies that are being proposed. And and we use the investigative tools that, that I worked used on the campaign when I worked with you calling people up, asking about people's background, getting a better understanding of what they did, who they are, what their character is, and just helping see if they're fit to serve in office, um, and then sharing that information with policymakers and, and decision makers so that we make a, a fully informed choice about who leads our agency. So if folks want to learn more about what we do, um, we have two websites that I think really lay out our information very well. Our main website is american-af.org. And if you're really interested in the work we do on vetting nominees, we have a website called bidennoms.com, which is a repository of information on the people who are looking to be senior leaders in the Biden administration um, and some of the concerns about uh, their past practices and their behavior um, that helps inform senators on, on when they when they vote on these guys. So you're putting your research background uh, to use every single day. Uh, and uh, that's why we asked you to be part of our faculty, our expert yeah. faculty for the new school board uh, campaign training program, which we've launched here at Leadership Institute. And the reason why we're starting with Tom with episode one is that research is an essential part of any campaign for uh, for office. And it's also an important part of making the decision to run for office yeah. in the first place. And people who will be listening to this podcast will be involved in school board elections, either as a candidate or someone supporting a candidate. So from a research standpoint, what are some of the things that a candidate for school board needs to be thinking about yeah. uh, when they uh, when they make a decision to run and as they're running and what the, what can they expect? Sure. So, you know, you and I there's understands a lot of different roles in a in an effective campaign, um, and there's different kinds of people who who fill different roles. Um, you know, I kind of I kind of like to think about it a little bit like Mad Men. You know, there's the gregarious account executive that's out making deals to, you know, get the Jaguar account and, and really echoing. That's more like your campaign manager. Um, and then there's the people, the researchers that are more like the creative guys that are kind of in the back. They're not really outgoing, um, but they really are, are vital to, to executing on the, pro on the process and the, and the product. And for a campaign, it's really important that you think about early in the process having a, a robust and professional team of researchers 
on your campaign who you both empower and, and give the tools to effectively conduct research to help make sure that you don't make mistakes, but also to highlight concerns with your opponents. Um, but you really need to understand the people that do research that are good at it, they're not going to look like the other people in, in your campaign. They're going to sit in the back of the room and they're going to look like they're, you know, they're not doing anything, but they're typing away at their keyboard um, and they're gathering information. It's really important, but but you got to understand they're, you know, they're a little bit different than everybody else. We're a little bit weird. We're kind of, you know, those research nerds, librarian types um, that are just a, a different animal, but we're vitally important. So. So on a on a presidential campaign, there's a whole different scale involved. Yeah. It's like uh, playing in the Super Bowl of politics every single day for right. a year or longer. But if candidates running for school board, they're not going to have access no. to you know a, a big team of researchers and and so on. So uh, what's involved with a candidate for a local government office like running for school board? What's involved with doing the research necessary to map out a campaign and then uh, what what can they accomplish on that on that scale? Uh, sure. So. Yeah, you're probably not going to have a whole bunch of paid staffers doing just research, but this is an excellent collateral duty for some for, for a lot of folks. It's a really excellent um, opportunity for your for your volunteers to get engaged. And this kind of I'll go through a couple different ways that they can get get engaged, and a couple different ways that they can use um, resources in their community that are relatively low cost but can be highly impactful. So. One of the things that I think, particularly for, for local races where research can be a, a really a multiplier, is the tracking operations. Um, and, you know, it sounds like it's big and fancy, but what you really need to do, and it, it's really fun for a lot of volunteers, is you should be having some of your volunteers that have some extra time, have them going to your opponent's events and, and videotaping the events. I say videotaping, it just shows you how old I am. Um, back in the day, we literally we were taking these little Sony camcorder things with the little flip out screen and standing in the back of the room and videotaping our opponents so that we understood what they were saying and, and seeing if they were making comments that were problematic. And that's not how it occurs anymore. And that's really helpful for for small campaigns. What happens now is people just hold their iPhone up and they they video a event and then downloads and it's up on YouTube almost right away. The great part about that is if you're doing it early, you're going to get your opponent slipping up, saying things that, you know, are just offhand and, and not really vetted well and, and are not buttoned up. Uh, but the other great part about it is they're not going to notice because there's going to be just a whole bunch of people in the back of the room with their, their iPhone or their Android um, recording the event. So candidates don't get, you know, kind of their, their spidey sense doesn't tingle when they see somebody whip out an iPhone like it did back in the day when, when you know, the guy on the monopod got the, the Sony camcorder out. So you can be really effective in that. And the earlier you do it, the better. Um, because politics is just like everything else. The more you do it, the better you, the better you get at it. That's going to be true for your opponent. It's also going to be true for you. So the other side of this on the tracking stuff works for your campaign as well. I think what's really helpful is you have one of your volunteers who the candidate, who you don't know if you're the candidate, go to one of your events and record your event and then go back and watch that afterwards and really get a feel for how you're doing on the stump. And if you really want to go the extra, kind of the extra step, is you get that person going out and you get that person to ask your candidate some questions that they may not be really good on giving an answer on yet um, and go play that back for them and say, hey, look, um, that's, you know, you say that that answer in front of a, a newspaper reporter, we're going to have a real problem. So we need to we need to get that buttoned up. We need to really have you more focused, more on message. I 
you know, I'm a former staffer, so I always ran away from cameras and I've been doing more um, media stuff now. And, and this kind of media training is really uncomfortable. It's not a fun process. <laughs> like, you know, having people show you, you know, figuratively and uh, maybe literally the, the warts um, is a, is a uncomfortable process, but it's going to make you a better candidate because you're going to be able to get your message across clearer without making mistakes that distract from from the message you're trying to trying to get to the voters about how you want to improve the the education in your local community, so it's really helpful. It's something you can do really early. And look, everybody's got an iPhone. This is a this is a no cost endeavor. This is sending a volunteer out and and having them do spend a couple hours doing a little bit of uh, of recording for you and really make a big difference. So that's one that's one place to start. But I can talk about some of the other resources and some of the things they should be researching as well. So we're talking about research during the campaign and. I pull a couple things out of what you just said. One is that for first-time candidates, and many people who will be listening to this podcast will be involved with campaigns of people who are running for office for the first time, that you're more likely to make mistakes the first time you run for office yeah. than if you're a seasoned incumbent who's run a couple times and so on where you're familiar with everything. And so there's that component of it. And then in addition to that, there's the fact that uh, whoever your opponents are in a competitive race, and in an uncompetitive race, it doesn't really matter, mm -hmm. but in a competitive race, there are things that your opponent might say that uh, that may need to be brought to light because the the nature of elections is that there's a vetting process going on. Yeah. The, our opponents are vetting our side, and our side is vetting the other team. Well, let's take a step back for a second in terms of making the decision to run for office. Yeah. Yeah. What type of decision-making process do you envision for a candidate who's thinking about running for school board or someone who's thinking about helping a school board candidate, what type of things should be researched on the front end that take place before making that decision to run and, and so that candidates are prepared if they decide to run and move forward? Sure. So, you know, it's kind of this old adage in politics, don't say or do anything you don't want to appear on the front page of the Washington Post. I think that works well here for candidates that are considering running for office. It's, you kind of paraphrase it of, you don't run for office if you have things that you're not comfortable with being discussed publicly in your in your local newspaper. Um, now that doesn't mean that you know everything you've done in your past is going to be disqualifying. Right. So overdue library books uh, right. might still be okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, even things like bankruptcies, you know, that there was a long time where that was just really disqualifying. But we, you know, we've had you know 2008 and then and COVID, we've had a large tranche of people who've just you know, for, for reasons beyond their control, their businesses went bankrupt. Um, right. And if someone had a business that went bankrupt or they didn't do, they had some financial issue, someone might potentially be able to turn that around and say, hey, I understand the economic challenges exactly. that people in our community have, have had to face. But it's the bug to feature part. But what, why it's really important to, to have the sit down talk with a, with a researcher or a senior leader on your team, what you need to do is you need to go through all these things. So, I think some things that are important to do, one, be as um, as forthcoming as you can with the trusted person that you're sitting down and having this conversation about, hey, here's what's in my past that, that we need to be aware of. Um, but then you really, you just kind of need to go through and look at all the facts. You need to look at your legal history. Have you, um, you know, do you have a DWI? Do you, you know, do you have, you know, maybe you got arrested when you were in college for using a fake ID or something. Maybe there's something worse, um, but you need to do all this research. Fortunately, you know, back in the day, it was very challenging to go in and get all these records of, you know, from police departments and courthouses. Really, within the last ten years, most most jurisdictions have put most of this online. So, if you do, 
you know, it's usually some version of um, court records and district court or parish court or something. They put that into Google. That'll give you and throw in the, your municipality. Put that into Google. You'll get the courthouse back. And in most places, you can search those for free um, or for for a nominal fee. Um, so that's the first thing you should do. Is look, you know, maybe you um, maybe you had a contract dispute in your business, and you know that's out there. Um, there's a way to make those things look bad. So you need to you need to have all that information to be like, you know, look, this was a routine business dispute. Um, you know, Smith Coast thought they thought we had agreed to ten dollars, and it turns out we we you know, I thought we agreed to eight and we settled it with an agreement of $9 and that's how business works. And it's not that big of a deal. Whereas your opponent, if you're not ready to respond, is going to be like, well, look, this guy cheated somebody out of money. Um, so you need to compile all those documents and, and have them ready as part of the analysis of how you're going to respond to them. So you should be looking at all the legal issues, criminal, civil. Now, you should really make sure you've paid your taxes on time. You know, I know you're probably like, oh, I think I paid my taxes on time. Uh, there's a surprising number of people who who haven't. We regularly come across liens. They're usually filed with um, whoever holds uh, the deeds in um, in your municipality, and they do that because they want the the government wants the lien to follow your home. Um, so they file the lien with the with the property recorder in your jurisdiction. So you should go there, make sure you know. Hey, maybe it was like two or three hundred bucks. You forgot about it. It's not a big thing and hasn't impacted your credit. You don't know it's there. But the two or three hundred dollar tax lien, that means you're a tax cheat. So you need to be, you need to have that information. You need to square it up, get it paid, um, and you need to be able to have the response. He's like, "Look, this was two hundred bucks as a filing." Or, you know, I worked for a candidate in Kentucky years ago. He had liens filed against him, but the jurisdiction didn't have his address. Never sent them to him. He didn't know about them. He was unaware of the liens. Um, got the daylights beaten out of him for being a tax cheat. And the problem was the escrow company didn't have his right address and never forwarded things along to him. So you need to pull all those liens. Um, you really should button up your social media. Um, you know, I know everybody thinks they're going to be Donald Trumpy, this really impactful social media dude, and everything out there. You're not. Um, <laughs> and you should really, you should, you know, Facebook. You should you, all those friends you have on on your Facebook. Not all of them are really friends, um, and they're they're seeing everything you can post. So. Um, really go through and read everything and have somebody read everything from the light of what is, what's the worst possible light I could, I could paint this comment in. And it's, if it's even something that's concerning, take it down. This is before you run. Um, do that with Twitter. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of folks on, on here that are in TikTok. Um, but just really clean the social media, scrub it, lock it down, um, work with your co communications team to get a more official, you know, professional side of how you're going to communicate with voters. Now, some people might say, well, this sounds like, you know, an awful lot of work for just running for some local office. And, you know, isn't this something that's more, uh, more fitting for, you know, running for a higher office. But to someone who says that, I would say that uh, very often the offices that are down ballot, mm -hmm. those races can be among the nastiest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, case in point is homeowners association oh. arguments are the most vicious ones out there because the lower the stakes, the more vicious the politics very often tends to be. And so uh, so I think that, that that's an important point for people to recognize that uh, you don't want to leave yourself in a vulnerable position or just assume it just because you're running for a local office that, uh, well, you know, if I have unpaid taxes, you know, big deal. No one will ever find it. Right. And I, I think you're exactly right about it being vicious because, it, you know, 
this race is very important to your opponent. This is probably their first entry into, into politics, and they're really passionate about the issue. And they really want to affect change. And you're the impediment to them doing that. So this is the kind, you know, digging up these little factoids that paint you in a in a in an unfavorable light is the kind of thing that that candidate or his volunteers are going to sit up and do it. Like, you know, instead of watching Netflix at 10 o'clock at night, they're going to go scroll through your Facebook page and screen cap the crazy stuff you said when maybe you had a couple too many beers one night and you were posting on Facebook or Instagram or something. Um, but this is a per- this is a personal to you, but it's also personal to the guy on the other side of the ticket. And I, yeah, I I think you're exactly right that you can't discount the amount of energy and time they'll put into making things difficult for you. So um, you know the the volunteer volunteers are passionate, and they'll you know there's a lot of folks that like to do this kind of work. So yeah, I think you're exactly right there, Ron. Yeah, people should. We want if if you're listening to this podcast, we want to make sure that if you're thinking about running for office or helping someone that. Everything goes really well in the campaign from beginning to end, and that means that means starting at the beginning. And the beginning means having an understanding of what your own background is. And there's it, it, much of what we teach at Leadership Institute actually involves unlearning things that people learn about politics either from social media, mainstream media, or watching episodes of The West Wing. You know, when I was uh, you know a state party chairman, uh, it seemed to me a lot of people who were around me, but at a distance, uh, thought that, well, he's a state party chairman, you know, every day of his life is talking to the president on the phone and, you know, frequent visits to the West Wing of the White House. That's not the case, you know, at all. Uh, So there there are big differences between how politics is conveyed in the media and and on social media uh, versus, uh, versus the reality. And the reality is that while people talk about research, in, in, always in the context of opposition research mm-hmm. and it's dirty and nasty and so on and so forth. The first step in research is actually researching yourself yeah. so that you don't have any surprises because bad information is okay, meaning it's part of the process. Overdue library books isn't the end of the world. But surprises, they're not okay no, because not even then something small can wind up being more damaging because you were surprised by it and you didn't research yourself first, which is the first step in this process. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I do love the glamorous pre- depictions of the opposition research world. And um, you're, you're right. They're completely inaccurate. Um, you know, for, for small local campaigns, I'm actually I encourage folks to do the same thing that I still do as a researcher. And that is utilize your local library. Um, it's amazing the resources you'll have at your at your disposal to, to research yourself. In local libraries, they have a lot, you know, newspapers.com, you know, and I do this for a living, it's still one of the best resources we use because it has a lot of small local papers in it that have been scanned and digitized where you can do these, you do name searches and find the small papers where you can, oh, like, well, I don't remember that they wrote that about me, but, you know, that's that's out there. And again, you can use it later on when you're deploying research um, on on your opponent. The other great thing about local libraries I'm convinced that librarians think they're all going to be out of a job in like some short number of years. So they're in this panic mode continually of being as helpful as possible. They're like, my goodness, I've got to be awesome because libraries are just going to die. I don't know whether that's right or not, but it's awesome for research because, I mean, I think it's probably part of who you are as a librarian. Like you want to be helpful. You want to find stuff. You want to solve these problems. Um, 
but they're really outstanding resources when you're trying to do some research about yourself. They have a lot of subscriptions that they buy that you just can't afford because they're you know these crazy expensive subscriptions to news services and things that they'll let you use. Um, I happen to live in Annapolis, Maryland, state capital. In addition to having my local libraries, the state of Maryland runs a law library. Now, that's outstanding as well for legal research. And again, the law librarians at the Maryland State Law Library, and you'll have these in Sacramento or Tallahassee or Austin, wherever, um, super helpful, a great way to go in and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find out about some court cases. Could you help me? They're going to sit down next to you. You're going to start tapping away. And you're going to get all that information for free, and they're going to they're going to bundle it up for you. So I can't recommend librarians enough. It's super helpful. So it sounds like what you're saying is that research is not just Google. No, but Google's great. Don't underestimate Google. Google's important, but that's not that's the beginning, not the end of exactly. the research process. And uh, and candidates and campaigners who rely solely on Google, chances are they're missing a lot of the story. They, they really are. So there's you know there's these records I talked about in your local courthouses. There's newspapers, and then really, you also need to think about public, non-public public records. And what I mean by that is, there's a lot of information, particularly police departments and reg, you know regulatory agencies, things like that in your community, that they collect that is publicly available but not proactively disclosed. And what that means is, you know, let's say, um, let's say you run a restaurant, let's say you're a small business owner, and um, you know you run a whatever, 10-table restaurant in your community. It's great. Um, all of those health inspections that, you know, the local health department's come in and done on your facility, they're all public records. So you need, so if you've, you know, if you run, you know, Joe's House of Tacos and, you know, well, maybe you didn't have the cooler down at the right temperature one day when the local health department came through and he wrote you up for it and you fixed it within two hours and you turned it to it. Um, that derogatory review is sitting at the health department waiting for your opponent to go pick up and say, this guy serves rancid food and has been cited by the health department 15 times, whatever it is. Um, you need to have that information. You go, yeah, let me tell you what my opponent's saying. Yeah, these are all like stupid ticky-tacky things that I fixed within a couple hours, and you can explain them all to the reporter within the news cycle so that the article isn't, you know, Joe's House of Tacos is a, is a vermin factory, but what it is is it's actually just like it was just minor things and it happens every day in the business and like we got a I got a 98 rating out of 100 from the health department. Let me show that too. Um, but be able to proactively address those things by getting those non-public public records um, that are available to you. Uh, I live in San Diego, California, as you know, and uh, and I remember very distinctly that an issue came up during the 2012 presidential election when Mitt Romney was a Republican nominee concerning elevators for his cars. And how that came about was that Mitt Romney had bought a house in San Diego and had planned to demolish the house, build a new house on the site, which is a, a common thing in certain areas where the value has mm -hmm. really gone up. And this yeah. was in La Jolla, which is a very fancy part of sure. San Diego. Uh, and uh, and so he had filed the plans for the, for the new house with the uh, relevant city agency. And the San Diego Union Tribune newspaper went and got those records, and they took a look at the plans uh, for uh, for the house, and it was it, it, it revealed that the plans included a, a, a large garage where it would be effectively a two-story garage where you could put a car on a lift and then park another car under the lift, uh, and this became a major talking point at yeah. least for a week uh, in that it, it was used by Mitt Romney's opponents to portray him 
with some you know wealthy you know dilettante who had right. uh, has no, nothing in common uh, with the middle class because look the guy has elevators for cars in his house uh, even though I don't believe the house was ever built or it was built and then he, and right. he sold it uh, anyway. So is that the type of thing which you're referring to? Yeah. And so there's I think there's two important points in that story. Um, one is that gets to what ultimately research is about. Research is about telling a story. It's about painting a picture for the public. Um, you know, I've, I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time and I worked on earmarks. And we go through and we pull these crazy things out of the bill, bridges to nowhere, teapot museums you know, rainforests in Iowa. It wasn't about the 10, 50, $200 million that those projects cost. It was about what they said about Congress, that Congress was wasteful, that they weren't taking the trust you had placed in them via your taxes seriously, and they, were, they weren't frugal. And those things help tell those stories with kind of a, a really kind of an absurdity to them that really, that drove home. And that's what happens with that's what happened with Mitt Romney's car elevator. It it painted that picture that you told of him being a dilettante. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing. That's how research is going to be impactful. So if your campaign manager looks at the research on you and goes, "Man, you know, I'm not really super comfortable with House makes you look boss," um, you need to be concerned. When you get to the more fun side of looking at it, and you, on the other guy, and you can be like, well, "This stuff looks crazy." That you know, those are the type of things that'll be catnip for your local reporter. So that's that's kind of one part of that that's really important. So this is a lot more sophisticated than just research is done in order to throw mud, right? Because that's a common perception that uh, oh, this is all dirty and so on. But actually, research is important to creating a narrative. Exactly, and that is the the narrative that you as a candidate want to make sure you communicate to the voters, making sure that. You're, that you minimize your opponent's ability to create a counter narrative on the other side based on the information that they learn, then also your work to create a narrative about your opponent that you want to create in a competitive election where that's necessary, uh, and, uh, and so on. So it's about having the information needed to create a story which will become central to the campaign. This is not just about let's go find some dirt and throw it against the right. wall. It's about making sure that candidates have the tools necessary to create the most effective narrative that will help them in the campaign and to create a counter narrative when necessary about their opponent. Exactly. And so research is, is the, the slug of information that takes hyperbole and rhetoric into being compelling, a compelling narrative. It makes it sound well thought out. It makes it sound detailed and more than just kind of a guy that's BSing at a bar. This is somebody who's thought this through, who's put data behind this. That's what the research does for you. You know, my opponent's a, is irresponsible. Okay, I'm, I'm sure, I guess, uh, is not compelling. My opponent's irresponsible because he has failed to pay his taxes on time 15 different times. Um, he built his property that encroached into his neighbor's yard by – 50 feet because he couldn't be bothered to get a good survey. And, um, you know, his his restaurant's infested with vermin and he didn't take fixing it seriously. That second one's much more compelling. It's the same attempt at a message, but it's much more powerful when you can go boom, 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 boom. And you got, as long as you have those citations of like, oh, you want taxes? Here's 15 pieces of paper that show you the tax. Oh, vermin? Let me show you pictures of rats running around Joe's house of tacos. Um, that is 
that's hard to ignore, whereas the guy, my opponent's just a loser. Well, sure, of course your opponent's a loser. If you didn't think he was a loser, you probably wouldn't run against him. And the same is true about the candidate's own narrative, right? right. In terms of candidate, uh, we teach that there are three parts of being, uh, to being a strong candidate. One dimension is your ideas, your philosophy. That, of course, is very important. The second part is the narrative, the story, what the mm-hmm. candidate has done, what they've accomplished, what their vision is. And the third is your skill. Now, here at the Leadership Institute, we're working hard to give candidates and people helping them the skills that they need. That's our specialty. But that second part, the narrative, has to be created by the candidate. So mm-hmm. it's much more credible. Let's say you're an incumbent seeking re-election uh, to a school board. That incumbent is going to be more powerful and more compelling in their argument if they can say uh, that uh, that they help to make sure the new uh, you know twenty thousand square foot science building mm-hmm. was built at the new high school that's now serving you know four hundred thirty five you know students uh, a week, uh, which is teaching these courses to make sure that our students are prepared. Uh, here's what's happened to our uh, college admission rates, our high school graduation rates. All of those data points help to re- they themselves don't create a narrative, but they support a narrative mm-hmm. that becomes more credible when you have real information. You know, it's been said. Nobody believes a number ending in zero. Right. And when you don't really have the information, you kind of make up numbers or exactly. say it's like it's over, over this or over or, you know, or less than that. But when you have the exact numbers, it comes across much more credible, not to dwell on the numbers, but it makes the underlying narrative more compelling. Yeah. And I think the the school board incumbent example is important. I think it's worth talking about for, for a few minutes. A lot of what we've talked about has been the warts of a candidate, the negative things we need to be concerned about. Your, your incumbent's a good example because what your research team can do and what they should do if you're incumbent is they should be going through your your four-year tenure on the school board and looking at everything you voted on there. Get the agendas out, get the votes out, and, and look through. And most of that is hopefully going to be putting together a record of increasing college admissions rates, getting new facilities, raising class scores, you know, those type of things, putting together that portfolio of excellence that helps tell your story. Now, there may be, as part of doing that, you may be like, yeah, guy also voted for a tax increase. And what are we going to do with that? So, you know, that's important because you, you, you do the, the whole picture. You get the, you get the great good side. Maybe you get some of the warts. But then you go into that and go, well, yeah, I, you know, I don't think you should vote for tax increases. But if you did – you then can go through and you build the narrative of, all right, I, yeah, I voted for a five mil tax increase on, on the local property taxes, but it was efficiently used. It increased our graduation rates. Um, STEM scores went up. You know, all of those things you build out so that when my opponent says you, vote for, you voted for the five mil tax increase, I can go, hey, you know what? He's right, but here's why. Um, and that's that's really important on, on making yourself effective in the campaign. And that brings us to one of the most important question in politics, uh, which, uh, you know, this week we're teaching our campaign management school here at Leadership Institute. Uh, and uh, and I emphasize to the students that the most important question in politics is not who, it's not what, but it's why. why? We call that the because clause. Steve Sutton, our senior vice president, who will be a guest with us on a future episode, uh, refers to this as the because clause. And it's so vitally important. Because people want to know, why are you running for office? Yeah. Why do you hold the positions you do? Why did you commit this, uh, you know, do this thing or do that thing? And when people understand the why and you can define your why, then you're in a much stronger position 
The alternative is to allow a vacuum to exist. Your opponent then comes in and fills in your why. And your opponent mm -hmm. says, well, let me tell you about such and such. And then that leaves an opening for your opponent's narrative to become the dominant narrative and exactly. influence the campaign. Exactly. And a research helps put the, the meat on the bones for that of you know why I'm running because class scores are terrible in our district and we can't tolerate that any longer. Or you know I'm running because we're paying too much in taxes in our community. I want to reduce the property taxes here because we're hostile to business because of our tax structure. Um, they always become more po more powerful with the data behind them. That's what the research is, is, is going to help you provide. So step one for a new candidate, yep. someone's considered running for office, is to research themselves, to have a thorough understanding yep. of themselves, and then to research their potential opponents so that they understand what the, what the narratives might be of those people they may face. And that information may or may not be used. If, uh, right. if you're running such an effective campaign or the conditions allow that you're running way ahead, then that information that you've gathered about the opposition may never wind up being used. But knowing is essential so that you right. can make sound decisions on a going forward basis. But then third is also researching the district, the electorate, yeah. and understanding uh, uh, the culture of the district, the history of the district, what the issues are of concern to people, on what basis they tend to make decisions. Who are the influential figures in the district who can have influence as well? So there's researching yourself, researching the opposition, and understanding the district. And that creates a body of knowledge upon which to base the planning of the campaign and the execution and the managing of the campaign. And that last bucket is really important. And to the extent that you have the ability to get a data-driven understanding of the electorate as close in time with when you're doing your research on yourself, to a lesser degree with your opponent, the more powerful it will be. And why I say that is research is only effective if the voters care about it. Like, you know, voters don't care many times if you cheated on your wife. Your wife probably cares, but um, that's a relatively small constituency. Um, but if the voters don't care about that, having that piece of information, it's good to have, but it's you, you don't want to exploit it. You're not going to be able to use it because it's not going to work. Um, and you don't want to invest the limited time you have in putting together you know, a rapid response team on something that people don't care about. Um, and, and that's what you have to do in campaigns. You have to prioritize the use of your time. So as you're putting together your assessment of yourself, also be putting together that assessment of the district because what you'll most likely find out is n not the people care less about some of these things that you think are, are important. You'll be surprised that they care about things that you didn't think were important. And that's extremely valuable because it, you know we'll default to what we care about. And if that's out of line with what the voters care about, you have a real, you have a real problem coming um, and, and a real concern you need to address. I like to, I like to talk about red light cameras. When I did research on Beto O'Rourke, he had voted in support of red light cameras on the, on the county council in El Paso. And he's running for U.S. Senate. We were like, this is a federal office. Like, who's going to care about red light cameras? We put it in the book and we tested it. And it tested through the roof. Red light cameras and fireworks regulations, like, tested through the roof. We we're like, this is crazy how this happened. Um, but we knew that was a message to be effective because voters care about it. I didn't really care. I mean, I do care about red light cameras, but I didn't like when I'm making a decision about who should be a U.S. senator, red light cameras not really top of my list. Doesn't matter. I'm not the electorate. So, 
you really need to have that assessment early because you may have something in your history that you didn't think was a thing. It's a thing, and it's a bus that's going to run you down. And if you don't have the most buttoned-up, clearest answer that diffuses that problem, you got a problem coming, both because it's going to be persistent and you're going to screw up the first answer. If you get the first answer wrong, you're just you're you're struggling to correct it because you never get that chance to make a, a second first impression. I think you're spot on with that uh, point. It reminds me of um, a, a citywide election in San Diego some years ago, uh, and one of the candidates looked like he was unstoppable. Uh, he was uh, he was on his way, you know, to becoming mayor, and of course, political campaigns are run by political people, and uh, and this candidate happened to have been at the time. Uh, a member of the California State Assembly. He was in the minority, so he was a Republican in the California State Assembly. He's in the minority, which means he doesn't have much influence because the majority runs everything. And, uh, and, and so it didn't really affect the outcome of legislation when he would not show up for votes in the Capitol. Mm, and yeah. political people didn't think that was a big deal because he's a member of the minority. He can't affect the outcome anyway. He was out spending his time doing things like raising money, but he wasn't casting votes. The political people didn't think that that would be an issue. But at the last minute, and I know the folks who were involved in the other side of the campaign, they inserted a question into a poll about whether or not they felt it was important that he showed up for votes, even though he was in the minority and couldn't affect the outcome. And it really popped. Yeah. It really was through the roof because the non-political people who, and they're the ones who get to determine yeah. the outcome of elections, they felt it was important. And they felt that if you're an elected office holder, you need to show up for work, you need to cast your votes. And they equated that with uh, with uh, with the job. And so for the remainder of the campaign against this candidate, the entire messaging changed and all the mail was about how he, how he didn't show up for work. And this candidate who was on track to win ultimately lost because of that issue. Yeah, and that's that really drives home the point that to the extent you can be as generous in putting together the list of, of issues that you do research on and that you have information about and test as many of them as you can because you'll be surprised. And it, it's this confirmation bias that, you know, bad researchers are plagued by just trying to recycle the same thing that worked three races ago. Um, that's, you know, and not putting in things that they don't think will, will work. Let the data f flesh that out. Be surprised. You know, maybe maybe you're not surprised, but very often you are. We always see it. Your example is clear, the fireworks and, and red light cameras. But you really need to make sure you're doing all the buckets of the, you know, the the areas I say folks need to be focused on. They need to be focused on legal. They need to be focused on personal. They need to be focusing on their kind of broadcast and social media type activities. Um and then they need to be focusing on their political activities. They need to have a full assessment in all those areas, a list of things that they think are concerning, um, and then they need to go find out, you know, they need to rank order how much, how big of a problem each one is informed by what the, what the assessment of the voters tells them. Um, so, yeah. So doing this process early on helps the candidate make a decision, should I still run for office? Uh, and then also it allows a candidate to have responses prepared yep. for anything that might come up. And it helps the candidate to create the narrative, what their story should be uh, for the campaign. And uh, I'm reminded of the 2000 presidential election, which, if we recall, uh, that was uh, George W. Bush versus Al Gore. And that what's what led to the Florida recount and, uh, you know, 58 mm -hmm. days or however long that was. And the common uh, his, you know, history kind of remembers the recall and how close it was in Florida. 
But history somewhat forgets that that election was as close as it was only because about nine days before the election, it had been revealed that uh, George W. Bush had had a DUI when he yeah. was in his 30s living in Connecticut. And that had never been discussed during the campaign. So nobody was prepared for that. And during the closing days of the 2000 election, George W. Bush's support was plummeting yeah. among evangelicals, people were, who were in his base, which forced the campaign to respond to that. And it just turned out that although his support dropped, it stopped just short of, uh, of costing him the election. Yeah. And so this gets back to kind of what I talked about a little while ago at the beginning of this is that when you start this process, at least for the vulnerability assessment, is you need to have a really honest conversation with someone you trust. And, you know, on a, on a school board race, this is going to be likely be somebody who's a personal friend of yours. Like this is going to be your, um, you know, your best best buddy from the chamber who you've known for 15 years or, you know, somebody that you like somebody you'd let watch your kids, that kind of person. That's what this is going to be. And you need to sit down with him and say, yeah, I did this stupid thing. And let's say let's use the the, the example of President Bush. He needs, President Bush should have sat down with somebody and said, yeah, you know, I got a DUI back in the day. Um, OK, or you got a DUI. How do we explain that? But you need to not be afraid. You need to teach us, treat this person like they're your priest. And you, you, you keep the room as small as you're comfortable keeping it. You know, if you can have the research guy in the room, great. On these races, it's probably going to be you and just somebody else. And you just go through and you put the list together and you tell them everything. You know, if you cheat on your wife, you tell them. If you've not paid your taxes, you tell them. If you've gotten arrested, you tell them. And you keep that document close hold and you work on answers to, okay, DUI. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the answer to DUI was. And that's because I'm trying to figure it out right now. And the way I'm kind of mumbling through how George Bush should have answered the DUI is, is exactly why you sit down before the race and put together this answer. You go, oh, yeah, a DUI because, I don't know, I was struggling with alcohol addiction. Okay, people get that. All right, good. Then, it, then you present yourself with the opportunity, like we talked about with bankruptcy, to flip the bug to a feature. I'm like you. I've had your experiences. I'm not perfect. I'm somebody you can trust because I'm, I'm honest with you um, and I have a shared experience. But you can't do that when you're like I was two minutes ago mumbling into the microphone. That's right, because when you're trying to respond to something like that, that, that that's a total surprise, uh, you want to have that answer already prepared. Uh, and so... Uh, you could respond quickly and that can go away. So we only have a couple of minutes yep. left, uh, but I want to leave our candidates, potential candidates who are listening to the program uh, with a couple of key takeaways. So uh, what are the key points that someone who's thinking about running for office needs to understand uh, if they're preparing to run if for maybe an office is going to be competitive, maybe the campaign will not be competitive, but what are the key takeaways, the, the, the checklist that candidates should have uh, as they go forward. Sure. So do all of this work before you stick your head up out of the, you know, above the desk and people start paying attention to you. Because you can make some, you can fix some things if people don't start keeping an eye on you. So that's the first thing is when you've, when you're probably even before you're just saying yes, you should be like, all right, I need to start checking through some things. And so what are those things? You need to understand your professional career. Are you an attorney? Are you a businessman? Go dig into those things and make a, a really genuine, legitimate effort to present those things in the worst light possible 
as your as your opponent would present them to you. And it's helpful if you can have kind of an objective third party who's not a Kool-Aid drinker help you with those things. So go through kind of your professional life. If you've been involved in politics, you need to really think through, hey, who have I donated to? Who have I supported? How's that going to reflect back on me? Look at your personal life. You know, do I have, um, you know, what do people think of me in the community? Who knows me? What's going to be the rumor mill in the small community I'm running in? What are people going to say about me? Kind of put that assessment together. Um, and then you need to make sure you look at the the legal and tax issues that are going to be associated with you. And that's, do you have court cases? Do you, you know, police being called to your house? Have all those records together? Um, you know, do you have tax liens? And can you explain them away? But really pull that together in a binder um, and get somebody who's, you know, trustworthy but but relatively objective to sit down and look at them and and really try to beat the daylights out of you. We call it a murder board, where you go up and you you throw you throw the kind of the the biggest haymakers at your at your client as, at the candidate, and you make them give good answers. Um, and do that murder board after you've compiled all these things, so that you know you can be you can be really sure. And look, you may come out of that murder board being going, you know what, I don't want to talk about this in public. And if that's the conclusion you make, become a staffer. Work for somebody else who's willing to go out and, and do those things, um, but be ready to it. And you look, maybe you'll maybe you'll be fortunate. You'll get some loser opponent who can't be bothered with these things, and they'll never talk about the issues in your past. Um, but that's probably not going to be the case. So you got to be prepared to have all these. Basically, got to be prepared for your mom reading about these things in the newspaper. And if you're not comfortable with your mom reading about these things in the newspaper, then then you really need to. You need to take a deep breath and pause. And in my 31 years of experience in politics, I think it's fair to say most candidates do not go through this thorough process. And that's why if you do go through this process, you're going to be much better prepared than the vast majority of people who are out there running because you're going to know what your narrative should be, what your pathway to victory is, what your vulnerabilities are and how to respond to them, what the counter narrative is to your opposition, if that needs to be, if that's a story that needs to be told, and you're going to be well prepared. And that is the goal of the Leadership Institute's new school board campaign training program. So Tom Jones, who you've heard for, uh, throughout this episode, has recorded two of the lectures during the school board campaign training program, which are available for you online at leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. And if you're thinking about running for school board or being involved in a school board campaign, I encourage you to go to the website, take the course. Uh, there's a multitude of lectures there. It is the most comprehensive training program available for candidates and people who are involved with school board campaigns. I think that's out there. We have a number of terrific partners from throughout the conservative movement who also have resources that are available through that website as well. And our mission here at the Leadership Institute is to help you to be prepared to succeed in the public policy arena. And we started this podcast series with this presentation today with Tom Jones, because that gives you the foundation needed to how to think about going about uh, putting this campaign together, making a decision to run for office. In subsequent episodes, we're going to cover campaign strategy, communications, fundraising, voter contact, and and a variety of other subjects related to fielding a strong campaign for school boards so you can be successful in putting conservative ideas into action. I want to thank uh, Tom. And Tom, could you give out the website again for the American Accountability Project? Sure. We've got uh, two websites, American-AF.org or BidenNoms.com, and they'll give you all the information about AAF and our Biden Noms Project. You can learn more about uh, Tom Jones there uh, as well. 
Uh, again, two web references for you at Leadership Institute. So leadershipinstitute.org slash school board uh, to enroll in the school board program. Also, the Leadership Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, foundation. Contributions to Leadership Institute are fully tax deductible. If you support our work, we encourage you to consider uh, making a gift so that we can continue to bring this powerful programming to the conservative movement from coast to coast. I'm Ron Nearing, and this has been Lead Right, the school board campaign training podcast from Leadership Institute. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.